0: Maybe this last year or so, maybe the last couple of years, more than the most, many people are living with concern that at some point they could lose their job. Prices are rising more than in the past. It's difficult to afford the food in the shops, never mind the electricity bill. Sometimes people are worried if they're on benefits that they might get reassessed and lose a lot of what they're used to in the western world in recent decades we've become used to the biggest threat to our security being economic job losses prices rising ending up with poor zero hour contracts rather than proper good paid jobs and so on In other parts of the world, and especially in the past, economic security hasn't been the main focus. It was physical security. The fear of invasion, the fear of being in a state of war, which would obviously impact our economic situation. But the physical security. In Ireland, we build round towers for security from people who would invade. Physical invasion. In Ukraine, there was a threat, even before last February, almost a year ago, before that there was a threat for for years, Russia had invaded the eastern part of Ukraine, but even before that there was always a threat that their neighbour might invade. Living with the threat of insecurity, or living with the impact of impoverishment, has been so much part of human existence for as long as we can remember, as long as we look back in history. There's been periods of peace, but there's never been a period where everything's been fine and everybody has been doing well. Some, you know, the, the 60s was a boom time in, uh, in Britain and in America, but not everybody was doing well then. Even when there is peace, the world's economy is set up in such a way that the richest and most powerful end up making the, the most money out of it. This week, according to Oxfam, the richest 1% of people in Ireland own a quarter of the wealth in Ireland. And that's not, that's not the way things ought to be. The rich getting richer and on the back of, of those who aren't so rich. But it's not as bad as a global average, where the, the world's richest 1% own not a quarter of the world's wealth, but two thirds of the world's wealth. There's many people who are rich and who are generous, and who donate a lot to charities. But overall, those in positions of power and privilege tend to look after themselves. So who look after the ordinary person? The governments often don't protect the poor. They tend to do what's, what's in the interests of those who are influential to them, those who are rich. So life is precarious for many people. When the economy goes well, most people benefit, although some more than others. But people are in a situation so often where even if things are going well, they're worried about what will happen tomorrow, what will happen next year. What about that threat from our neighbouring country? What about the prospect of a of an economic downturn? Where's our security? I, I, I'm tempted to talk about the politics of capitalism and communism, <laughs> but as much as that is an interesting topic and the, the Bible has an awful lot to say about that you know, we could talk about the need for a minimum wage to, to put taxes on the rich and so on but we could talk also of how the early church in a time of revival after Pentecost they shared their possessions with others and the main difference is that between the Christian approach and various political approaches is it, or various economic approaches is the most economic situations tend to be whether it's capitalism or communism it's tend to be one group of people trying to get what other people have in one way or another to enrich themselves whereas Christianity instead of saying what's yours is mine as one preacher put it Christianity says what's mine is yours It's about a giving rather than a a taking approach. Or we talk about how under the law of Moses, the Israelites lived in an economy which was fair and balanced. It had checks and balances. It was set up to be fair. But eventually, each one of these things, capitalism, communism, even revival, even the New Testament revival or even the Old Testament law, each of these things is flawed by sin. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to hold back some of the money that they tried to make out that they had given to the church. And that sin seems to have been the the start of the decline of that revival, of that blessing Under the law of Moses, it was the people's sin, whether they weren't working the land or whether they were being exploited by others or various different things. They ended up in a a decline. They ended up where the the leaders of the people were not protecting the poor, the widows, the orphans. And there was a sin of the power-hungry nations beside them wanting to invade and plunder them. We are not living in a paradise. There's always a threat, the insecurity of others around us. If it's not for ourselves, it's for our children or our friends or our community. If it's not about economics or politics, it's, it's about health and other things. Our reading in Isaiah chapters 25 to 26 is actually very similar in these respects to where we are today. We sometimes look at the Bible and think, well, that was ages ago, that's irrelevant to us today. But actually, they were facing the same problems as we face today. Slightly different in their details. But just like the the people of Ukraine would have been worried about Russia invading some years ago, the Israelites were concerned about the threat from Babylon. The northern kingdom had been invaded and people were taken captive by the, the superpower of the time, which was Assyria. And yet the southern kingdom, Judah, the tribe of Judah mainly, they still hadn't been overrun. But Assyria gave way to Babylon became the next superpower, and the threat was there. I always struggle with which one came first. I'm not great with names, uh, but I remember that Assyria and Babylon, it's, it's an alphabetical order. <laughs> Assyria came first, then it was Babylon. So this superpower of Babylon was threatening Israel. And you know later on, in one of the Psalms, there's the song... Um, where they were lamenting as they sit as they sat by the rivers of Babylon, yet before all this happened, Isaiah was prophesying, he was ministering to the people, he was predicting that destruction was imminent, it was coming, and it was actually god 's way of turning the people in the long run back to himself. He had been patient with them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They'd fallen away and yet when they turned back to him he was gracious to them and then they took him for granted again. They fell away and they came back and he was gracious but this cycle was just leading them further down each time. And sometimes God uses extraordinary means to actually wake us up, to turn us back to him. And the invasion's were that. It was partly judgment and it was partly mercy. So that the people would learn. Sadly when it comes to many aspects in life we don't learn by warnings. (coughs) We don't learn by being told what's what. We have to feel the pain of something before we really learn a lesson. Children, you tell them not to do something but it's when you take away their phone (laughs) that they really think, oh, this is hurt. I, I mustn't do that again. And it was... what's well, just like today when people... When there's laws against certain things, that doesn't stop people breaking the law. It's the threat of being caught and punished. It's the reality of how strong the courts are in punishing people that really stops people from doing things. And so, too was the threat of exile or the threat of punishment that was on the people. And God had been patient. He had not given them what they deserved. He'd not meted out their punishment that they, that they were due many times over. But in order to turn the people's hearts back to him, they eventually had to be cruel to, to be kind in a sense. So the northern kingdom was exiled first by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was under threat by the Babylonians. And that's the situation into which Isaiah was ministering. Isaiah's ministry was not just out of impending judgment of invasion, of exile, but he also wrote about the restoration, the hope, the salvation that would come after that. In the book of Isaiah, we have some of the most encouraging verses in the whole of the Bible. Verses about renewing our strength, rising up on eagles' wings in chapter 40. Of the forgiveness of sins, that even though our sins are red as scarlet, they should be as white as snow in chapter 1. Of the glory of the Lord shining on his people from all nations. Chapter 60. Of the suffering servant which prophesied of Jesus. By his wounds we are healed. Speaking about the cross. And about the fulfillment. Of all the blessings that he has secured for us there. Of a great light shining on the people who dwell in darkness. Chapter 9. And of, of death being swallowed up. And God wiping away the tears. Of the people, which we read in chapter twenty five he will swallow up death forever. the sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Isaiah was speaking to the Jews, to the people of the tribe of Judah, who were living around Jerusalem at the time, the ten kingdoms in the north which were known as israel they were they were exiled by the Assyrians and it was the, the southern kingdom of the Jews which really, or the Judah, which became known as the Jews because of the tribe of Judah who were exiled later to Babylon but became back. So what was formerly known as Israel when the kingdom was united before the exiles, after the exiles and the return they became known as the Jews because it was really only the tribe of Judah that mainly remained somewhat intact after the exiles. They came back under the ministry of Ezra and rebuilt the temple and under the later under the ministry of Nehemiah they rebuilt the walls. However, those words that we read there were not just pointing towards when the people would return back to Jerusalem. They point even further forward They remind us of the words in in Revelation chapter 21 that God will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. We can see that Isaiah was not just prophesying about the restoration of the people in the land, returning to Jerusalem, but that he was prophesying in a in a way which was further out, more distant, speaking about eternity to come. Not just prophesying about Jerusalem being restored, but about the new Jerusalem. A couple of verses before that, in Revelation 21, we John, we see John write that, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed, for her husband. The restoration of the earthly city of Jerusalem. Therefore signifies or points forward to the heavenly Jerusalem. The people of God. The bride of Christ. The company of all believers. From both the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. In a sense what Isaiah is writing is. Is not just for Immediate. Application for for the people he 's writing to, for the Jews in Jerusalem about their restoration, their exile and restoration, but he speaks at a deeper at a more distant level at a more profound level of our eternal restoration, not just of the earthly city of Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. One commentator writes that these chapters. Chapters 25 to 27 are not easy to analyse. This is at least partly so because two types of literary genre occur here the psalm of of thanksgiving and the eschatological, that's a fancy word for end times, prophecy. So at one level, Isaiah is writing about the immediate context, yet at another level, he's speaking about what is eternal about what is still to come. And so there's application for the people back then, but also promises for us now. In the midst of this, there's eternal truths that apply for both them and for us. And it's these truths, some of these truths and these promises which, which are contained there in Isaiah 26 that I'd like us to focus on. In that day, everyone in the land of Judah will sing this song. Our city is strong. We are surrounded by the walls of God's salvation. Open the gates to all who are righteous. Allow the faithful to enter. The city of Jerusalem was a walled city. And walled cities are there to protect the people within. And so the city of of Jerusalem was meant to to be a place of salvation a place of refuge for the people it was a safe place for them a place of blessing a place of protection and yet that symbolizes more than just what they experienced that protection that, that Jerusalem provided for the people there symbolizes the protection that we find that God's people find coming to him entering into that new Jerusalem coming to a relationship with God through faith in Christ today our God is a refuge to all who will turn to him we don't trust in an earthly city so much as we trust in our heavenly father he has promised his eternal protection by his mighty power We're not trusting in the walls of a city to protect us. We're trusting in God to protect us. Jerusalem symbolized, it was a type in a sense, it symbolized the protection that God provides for his people. And anyone from any nation can experience his protection now as we anticipate the world to come. The city described here is more the New Jerusalem, not the Old Jerusalem. The city described here is a place where the righteous enter, a place of salvation, not just a, a place of physical security, not just a place where there's economic protection, physical protection, but people are called to trust in God, where all the protection, physical, spiritual, whatever way we need it, is found and as Isaiah's praise and prophecy rises above these <coughs> earthly concerns that the Jews had their, their, their need for protection was real and yet what Isaiah writes about points further beyond that he continues as he focuses on eternal <laughs> truths and he says you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you All whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. It's mainly these verses that I would like to focus on today. And it's mainly the first of those two. You will keep them in perfect peace. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. This city of God, this Jerusalem that Isaiah speaks of in verses 1-2 to is open to anyone and everyone to find refuge in, in Him, in God. We enter there when we place our faith in Christ, when we receive that forgiveness that He has secured for us on the cross. We enter there and we find that we have a new identity, The nations, people from all the nations around the Israelites around Jerusalem, they were welcome to come and join the people, to change their nationality, to become part of the people of God. There's a sense in which the Israelites were to be a light to the nations, not just that that God exists and there was a righteous way of of living that God loved His people, but this. People should have been just, they should have had an open door to the nations to come in and people were welcome to join them. As long as they were placing their faith in God, as long as they were living under God. That outward focus, uh, almost an evangelistic focus, was not as dominant in the Old Testament The people of God, the Israelites, were more a testimony to God and his glory and his plans. It was the first stage of of his plan to bless all the nations. And that blessing just exploded when Christ came, when Pentecost came, and the gospel went out to all the nations. But it was there in some form back then, but now people are invited to come into that holy city that new Jerusalem when we share the gospel with others when people trust in Christ they they become a new person they have a new identity they have a new belonging and we look forward to our eternal home when the, all of God's people are gathered together that new Jerusalem that is Coming down out of heaven, even now, it is still being made, it's still being built. When that is fixed, when Christ comes, we will be with all of God's people. And that'll be a wonderful day. People from all nations, all tribes, all backgrounds, all different strata of society, all equal before the Lord. And while we're waiting for that, Isaiah writes how we ought to live. We ought to trust in the Lord always. We ought to trust in him always. The natural question is why? Why ought we to trust in him? And it's almost as if Isaiah anticipates that. Trust in the Lord always for the Lord God is the eternal rock we can trust in him because he is trustworthy he is reliable he is the rock of our salvation as we read through the Bible Isaiah teaches that a stone, a cornerstone will be laid which is Christ Paul later tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 4, that the rock that the Israelites drank from where the water came out of in the wilderness, that that rock is Christ. In many ways, the scriptures point to God being our rock, Christ being our rock. When people go through very difficult circumstances, you'll often hear them say that, so-and-so was my rock through that situation. But we ought to say that God is our rock above all else. He is our anchor, He is the one who gives us stability. He's the one that we can rest in. When times are insecure, when we're concerned for what the future may hold, it's because God is a rock that we can trust in Him. And it's because God is a rock that we can say that He will keep in perfect peace all who trust in Him. Our security is in God and his faithfulness. Our security is not in our faith, but the one in whom we have faith in. Disney is very well known these days for saying, you know, just have faith, just believe. At least it was a couple of decades ago. uh, Films where, you know, people, faith was... Divorced from God. Faith in God was transferred into just faith in itself. As long as you believe, things will happen. But that's not what that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to believe and just trust and just believe and it'll happen. That's believing in nothing. That's believing in believing. And that can't help. That's powerless. Just thinking more positively. Just having positive thoughts it's not going to change a situation but God can change situations and it's in him we trust our faith is in him it's not our faith that we're trusting in but it's God who we're trusting in trust in the Lord always for the Lord God is the eternal rock So if we're tempted to worry, we should instead put our trust in God. And when you think about it, worry is what we do when we don't put our trust in God. Worry is, well, when we're facing a situation, we tend to to try and be in control ourselves. And we do what we can. And when we're able to do something, we feel confident. I can sort that out. I can do that. Let me fix it. But there's times when we're not actually able to fix things. We haven't got the power, we, can't, we don't have the influence. And when we don't have that power or ability, we feel we're powerless. And so we can't fix it. And so we worry. Worry is not just a sign of relying on ourselves, of being self-dependent. Fixing things on our own strength is also a sign of self-reliance. But instead, we should be trusting in God and thanking him that he's given us the ability to maybe fix things and sort things out. But when we can't, we should still trust in him and say, Lord, I've done all I can. It's over to you (laughs) to do the rest. But instead of trusting in him, we still regain control ourselves but we're not able so we worry that's what worry is being self-reliant but not having the ability to fix things Paul in Philippians says don't worry about anything instead pray pray about everything tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. We have to depend upon him. Trust in the Lord. You will keep him in perfect peace. You will keep him in perfect peace. All who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. And one of the things that's key in there is tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. It's not enough just to tell God what you need and say, Lord, I've done all I can. Can you now fix this for me? Because that is not a good attitude towards God. That's not a good relationship with Him. That's a that's treating God simply as a as a slave in a sense. As a fixer. But we have to thank Him for all He has done for us. We need to thank Him for the blessings we have had. It's it's a relationship with Him of of love, of thanks and when we thank him that actually shows a dependence, a gratitude which changes our attitude and if we don't have the thanks we so often don't get the peace Jesus tells us that we should seek the kingdom of God above all else And live righteously. Seek first his kingdom. And he will give us everything else we need. We tend to seek the things we need. And think well you've told us Lord to look to you. And yeah we look to you. But as long as you sort out our situation. No. Jesus tells us it's not about us above all else. It's about us looking to God. It's about us making God and his kingdom. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, above all else. And when we're not as concerned about our own situation as him, he promises to sort out our situation in the process. David 2 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Seek first the kingdom of God, take delight in the Lord these are ways in which we set our minds on him these are ways in which we don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries today's trouble is enough for today we can worry about all kinds of things and that worry is lack of faith it robs us of our joy and it dethrones God from being in control puts us in control And we're not able to cope. So we worry. We resort to all kinds of solutions. We try and fix things ourselves instead of trusting in him. But instead, let's trust in him. We might not know what tomorrow is going to to bring. We might not know what next year is going to bring. But let's not worry. Let's depend upon him who is the rock of our salvation. If we've already trusted in him, let's take joy, let's be thankful, let's praise God. If we haven't trusted in him, let's draw close to him through faith in Christ. Christ has broken down the the barrier between us and the Father. He is the mediator. The fact that we have sinned presents a barrier to us before God but Christ has taken our sin on the cross so that we should not perish but have everlasting life when we trust in Christ we can then draw close to God when we trust in Christ we can then take this promise to ourselves that he will keep in perfect peace all who trust in him all whose thoughts are fixed on him so trust In the Lord always, for the Lord God is eternal rock. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love towards us. We thank you that even though we are tempted to be self-reliant, Lord, you've called us to rely on you to not worry about tomorrow, to not depend upon ourselves, but above all else, to trust in you, and you will keep us in perfect peace, Lord, keep our minds in peace, give us that peace of God which passes all understanding, and Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us, in Jesus' name, Amen.